Welcome Builders from Lakeland, Florida. This is the Build Your Success Leadership Podcast with your host, Brian Brogen. We're going to empower and equip you to build yourself and then build others. Now, let's build up with your host, Brian Brogen. We'd like to welcome you today to the Build Your Success Podcast. Thank you, builders, for joining us today. This is a place where we build you so you can build others. And we're grateful that you listen to the podcast. I am grateful today also to have a special guest. We've got Samuel Cook with us today. Samuel graduated from West Point in 2000, so we want to thank Samuel for his service. He went on to become a U.S. Armored Cavalry Officer, where he served as a regimental adjunct for Colonel H.R. McMaster in the Battle of Telefar in 2005 through 2006. This was cited by President Bush as the turning point in the war. With a front row seat to history, Sam was responsible for the media messaging and writing the history of this campaign. In 2007, Sam returned to Iraq as the commander of Crazy Horse Troop, 1st Squadron, 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, where he was cited in the Washington Post and Tom Rick's best-selling book on Iraq for his novel counterinsurgency strategy that combined tribal negotiations and police trained parole systems for a mass surrender. So this is a great uh, bio, Sam. There's more to it than that. I'm sure we'll get into some of that. First of all, thank you for your service. Today, we're going to talk about leading through crisis. And Sam's got some uh, real experience there. We're going to talk about that. But welcome to the podcast today. Hey, thanks a lot, Brian, for having me. And it's great to be uh, connecting with you and your audience. That's awesome. So, so tell us about this tribal negotiation experience. That's got to be so, some really challenging things to, to be in another country, number one, in a war zone, and then to, to have these negotiations amongst tribes. Well, Brian, it, it seems like a lifetime ago, and, uh, but you know, I, I can still remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, when I went to Iraq, my first tour, um, I was incredibly fortunate to be serving under, I think, probably the best officer of, of our generation. Uh, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, retired at that time, was a colonel in the United States Army and commander of the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment. And uh, I'd served under him as a lieutenant. Uh, I went and served under him again as a captain right before we went to Iraq. And when we got to Iraq, he was, uh, he was commander of the regiment and I was put down uh, as a squadron governance officer for the third squadron in, in South Baghdad. And I was given kind of a throwaway job. It's because I probably wasn't a great staff officer, not great at doing PowerPoint slides and, and, uh, uh, operations orders. And I was given the job of going to negotiate with the tribal uh, leaders in our area. And I just got really into uh, this kind of idea that uh, the fight that we were in uh, was, was way more political uh, than, than just uh, a firefight. And there were a lot of negotiations. And, and really the goal uh, that the U.S. Army was trying to accomplish was was not that far away from what the Iraqis wanted, which is they wanted us to leave, and we wanted to leave. But because we had broken the country when we went in, uh, foolishly not planning for the post-invasion 
as we should have, as I think everyone now recognizes, um, leaving the country prematurely before government, governmental systems were set up, police force, the army, uh, was going to leave the country wide open to what eventually happened was the Islamic State uh, and, and some extremist terrorist groups uh, could potentially take over the country. So I just got into the tribal negotiation almost by accident, as that was my job. I uh, got pretty good at it. And then in the middle of the tour, or two months in, I got called up to the Battle of Talafar, where I served under General H.R. McMaster, and I was his adjutant. And this was a very complicated area in Iraq with the, the Turkmen leadership up there, uh, which was uh, Islamic, but Turkish origin in an Arabic country uh, with both Shia and Sunni uh, tribal members and watched uh, General McMaster, who was a premier warfighter, was the hero of the Battle of 73 Easting in the first Gulf War, who was famous for destroying a brigade, which is over 3,000 soldiers worth of uh, tanks and armored vehicles, uh, basically destroying that brigade with a company-sized unit of 140 people or cavalry troop size in, in, in a battle. So I was watching what I consider to be and what many people consider to be one of the greatest warfighters in the army spend a lot of time talking to people and talking to tribal sheikhs and local leaders. And what I learned from watching this was that that war, uh, just like I think everything in life, is is a story. Uh, it is a battle of stories, as it were, between the United States uh, vision for Iraq's future and Iraqis' uh, vision for their future, and also the uh, people that we were fighting who had a very different kind of medieval nihilistic vision for the future of the people there. And this is, I think, when the spark was lit inside of me of the power of storytelling and negotiation and using influence rather than just bullets and guns to accomplish what at that time was the biggest thing I ever thought I'd be involved in and, and probably to this point still has been uh, in my life is the, um, you know, the accomplishment of a, of a critical national security objective for, for the U.S. and frankly, lives were, were on the line in, in Iraq. So I watched a great leader uh, forego the chance to have a great battle in the name of negotiating uh, some, some alliances and some surrenders uh, of, of different factions in the midst of a very tough battle. It was still a, a very violent battle with, with a lot of uh, casualties, mainly on the enemy side, but, but some also on ours. And the big lesson I got from that was that uh, the power of story and negotiation and empathy, listening to other people, understanding their perspective and compromise. So my first tour ended, I came back, I became a cavalry troop commander and immediately took charge of a troop in the same regiment, General McMaster or Colonel McMaster at the time moved on. We had a new commander come in, Colonel Bills, my new squadron commander, Colonel Dorme, and we trained for the next uh, tour in Iraq. And I understood that tribal sheikhs were a lot like uh, mafia bosses in the old Godfather movies in, in Italy, or sorry, in uh, Little Italy in New York. So I had the idea to train with uh, the Austin Police Department down here in, in Austin, Texas, where I am now, to learn how to understand organized crime networks, because I just viewed the insurgency that we're fighting as an organized crime network with guns and bombs and some other things. And we developed a very uh, uh, 
decentralized investigative approach to fighting the insurgency by training our soldiers in police tactics, link pattern analysis, uh, crime scene investigation, tactical questioning, uh, you name it, we trained it from the police force, SWAT training, sniper training, uh, close quarters combat and urban environment. And when I went back to Iraq, we, it was during the surge, we expected things to be very violent uh, as they were while we were watching uh, the war preparing to go back. And as soon as I got back there, I had, uh, we adopted a very uh, aggressive posture with the local population in that we moved our entire unit out to live in an abandoned hotel in the local population, in the city, rather than the safety of our base, uh, co-located with the Iraqi Army Battalion and the police. And we started putting a lot of pressure on by looking for people that were on the wanted list uh, the people that we were fighting. And this was the early days of the Islamic State back when that was just a startup, the Islamic State, back in the early days in Iraq. And as we went out there, uh, we started to get some word that people wanted to negotiate with us. And because I had seen this happen before under one of the most respected commanders, uh, you know, I believe in this generation, um, I knew exactly what to do. So I started a parallel path of negotiating and putting pressure on the people that we were fighting in order to accomplish one very simple objective, which was our mission was to transition the security of the responsibility of the Iraqi people to the Iraqi police and the army. And I believed that opening a dialogue with some of the people who were not on our side, who were fighting the Americans and the Iraqi army and police was probably the best way with obviously accountability uh, to solve the situation. So it became a movement that I didn't expect to happen. 190 or so people in our local area surrendered. We were able to use the local population's uh, tribal system as a guarantee. So if a tribal leader or a father or a brother would guarantee their family member was going to stop fighting and always be available to speak to us if we needed to, they're on some kind of home arrest or probation. Uh, and that really significantly decreased the violence, uh, created a lot more safety for our soldiers and local population and we were able to um, negotiate what I, what I was very uh, proud to uh, participate in, which was one of the first uh, mass surrenders during the surge under General Petraeus. So it was, it was a heck of an adventure, but one of the things I, that I learned was I'd been trained to fight and do all of these things, but the most powerful thing that I could have done was listen, understand, uh, and negotiate and, and compromise and, and tell a story to the local population and mind you, my soldiers who were trained to fight as to why negotiating and uh, creating a ceasefire was the best outcome for everyone involved. For the soldiers, hey, you don't want to lose your buddies as much as you've been trained to fight. You're going to lose some if the fighting kicks up. And to the local population, uh, yes, we want to leave too, just like you want us to leave, but we also don't leave you in the hands of the people who are going to treat you uh, you know, in a bad way, which we saw when the Islamic State took over Iraq briefly a couple of years ago, that was the way they behaved. And we knew that at the time, and we were working hard to prevent that. Wow, such a great, uh, the front side of your bio, and, and that some of the things you were discussing there about storytelling leads into the second part where you founded James Cook Media and the, uh, the company is a story. So you founded uh, James Cook Media after leaving the Army. And James Cook Media is a company that's a storytelling marketing agency that focuses on growing 
brands of authors and experts around the world. And you host the Story Matters podcast. So you're a fellow podcaster. For all the listeners out there, I encourage you to go listen to this podcast. Uh, Samuel could definitely tell a story here. And uh, I'm sure the podcast uh, resonates with others and just encourage you to go try that one out. But tell us about this storytelling marketing. I love the idea. Well, look, you are uh, my ideal customer. You are what I would call my hero of, of the story that I'm trying to help people like you write. And, and really the essence of storytelling is your customers, people who are going to buy coaching from you, uh, Brian, people who are going to invest in consulting with you, uh, they will only buy from you when they believe one simple thing. They right now have a life that is their current reality. And they have a story or a vision for what that life could become. And they have a story about why they're not there. They have a story about why I'm not wealthier, why I'm not uh, promoted in my job or why my relationships aren't better. And, and that story can be either empowering or disempowering. And as a coach, as an author, as an expert, when you show people a credible path to the better future that they want and change the thinking, the psychology in their head about the story, about why they can't get there to the story about how that becomes possible, then you can literally change the story people are telling themselves in their head, which, which leads to the story that becomes the reality of their life. And that's what we mean by storytelling marketing. So storytelling marketing starts with understanding at a deep level, who your ideal customer is, who the hero of the story is. And this is really important because a lot of people, when they hear about storytelling marketing, they say, great, I'm going to tell my story. And I have a video online that is my ad. And in my ad, I have nothing about my background. I don't talk about being an army officer. I don't talk about being a professional marketer. I don't talk about being a public speaker because I believe the questions you've just asked me are irrelevant to my audience. And here's why. Everyone is walking around living their own story and they're immersed in their own story. Right now, in May of 2020, everyone has a story about what the heck the COVID coronavirus means to their life. It's, it's why they lost their job. It's why they are doing great because they're in an industry that, where things are going well. They have a story about what's happening to them and they have no tolerance or no patience for anyone else's story because they're focused on theirs. So really understanding that if you're hesitant to put yourself out there and market yourself and you want to use storytelling, you don't need to talk about your story. In fact, I believe that nobody cares about your story until they believe that you care about their story. So the first thing you have to do in storytelling marketing is say to your ideal clients, your audience and your ads and your articles uh, in your podcast and everything that you put out there to broadcast to that audience, I understand you. I know exactly what you're going through right now. I understand the story that you're living and I understand the story that you want to live. And I have a coaching methodology, a system to help you get to that better future. And here's how you can learn more about that. And then you give them some kind of free content series that free content series is an elongated story. I have a three-hour masterclass. Believe it or not, 36, 37% of the people who opt in for my three-hour masterclass watch the entire masterclass. And by the end of them watching that three hours of video, they have a completely different imagination about what's possible 
with their business because I've taught them how to tell better stories that can inspire their clients to invest in a better future. So no one is going to invest in you as a coach, as an author, as an expert, as, as anything. No one's going to invest in the software that I build, Sanity Desk, till they believe that it's going to solve some problem that is preventing them from getting something that they desperately want in their lives. So, so that's really the essence of storytelling in marketing is really demystifying this, this mythical thing about a story. You know, in Iraq, the Iraqi people wanted a better life. They wanted safety. They wanted security. They did not want foreign soldiers in, in their country. That was a very understandable desire if you look at it from their perspective. But if you're an American soldier and you're looking at it from your perspective, you're saying, oh, you guys don't like us. You're not thankful that we came in and liberated you from Saddam Hussein. Yes, that's the American perspective. But if you put yourself in their shoes, and this is what I said to my soldiers when I started negotiating with the Iraqis, I said, guys, show of hands, if China invaded Texas, which is where we were based, Fort Hood, Texas, uh, how many of you would be out there fighting them in the woods after they invaded and occupied Texas. And almost all of them raised their hand. And I said, as your commanding officer, I would personally shoot any of you who do not raise your hand. Meaning, can you not understand exactly how these people who are fighting us are thinking and why it is so important to speak to them and understand what they're feeling and thinking, what they want, and see if there's a way to get there. Wow. Yeah, that whole perspective thing, and man, that's one of the best analogies I've heard. I mean, think of people coming in your backyard and wanting to shoot at you and, and how you would feel about that. That That is so true. And you, you, you talked about this current crisis that we're in. The whole world is in with this COVID crisis. And the story from the uh, pessimist perspective is we're in a we're, we're headed for a depression yeah we're, we're not we're not spending any money you can't go out and get new coaching clients right now you can't sell things right now people don't want to buy anything and yet we're in a time where so many people are using social media and learning and paying to learn while they're stuck at their computers so you know it just depends on how you look at things i heard a story one time about two shoe salesmen going to a foreign country and uh, to sell shoes. And when they both got there, one wires back to their office, home office said, send an airport airplane ticket. I need to get out of here. None of these people wear shoes. <laughs> and the second salesperson said, send me four cases of shoes. Everybody needs shoes. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just all about perspective, isn't it? Yeah. And, and look, this is, this is exactly the point in the current perspective right now, uh, you're sitting around and, and let's say, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your, your audience uh, may be in a position where you've, you've lost a job. I mean, that, statistically speaking, that's pretty, that's pretty normal right now. And you have to decide, you can't change the facts of what happened. You got laid off or your business just lost all of your clients or 80% of your clients. You cannot change that. That is a fact. Financial reality is happening. It's going to continue to happen. The question becomes is, what are you going to do with that facts? What story are you going to tell yourself? And it's precisely what you just pointed out. The empowering story is, wow, I just lost my job. Therefore, well, well let's start with the disempowering story. The disempowering story is, I just lost my job. I'm worthless. Nobody's ever going to hire me again. 
you know, this this is a disaster, right? And 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 you know, uh, let me focus my energy energetically on who to blame. Whether whether you love the president, uh, you're gonna, you're going to blame uh, some some other uh, conspiracy out there that, that you can assign to who caused this. Whether it's you know the Chinese did this or or the deep state or whatever the narrative is that you hear bubbling up on social media from one side. And if you hate the president, it's very easy to say, hey, President Trump is killing people because. He, he failed to do this. And neither one of those are remotely true, right? The American government, I'm here to tell you, I've been in the American government and I've been there in Iraq. We are not competent enough to pull off a big conspiracy to take over the world and take all people's rights. And the president didn't cause this virus, right? But the truth is somewhere in between and people can either focus their energy and their vitriol on one of those realities or they can sit back and say, and I went through this four, four weeks ago in my business, we were about to get angel investment and sanity desk and the investor pulled out. He said, Hey, I got to see what's going to happen. And for me, it was okay. This is a brilliant opportunity to bring the team together, figure out what's really, really important, cut costs if we need to. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make it through this because that was the, the, I already had, I already had the ending of the story written in my head, which is whatever happens, we're going to get through this. And we're going we're gonna to bring this software through this. We're going to bring the team through this. And it's just, it's just going to work. And then when we had that story and that narrative in our head, we were able to go back to the same investor who was not going to put in nearly as much money, but who still decided to invest. Because we offered, we said, hey, we're willing to take a 30% pay cut across the board, myself included. I'll take no money as the leader of the company in order to get through this. Now, your money will get us through this crisis. And he said, okay, I'm in. And it was the stories, like the sheer nature of the fact that we were able to rally the team to volunteer to do such a thing to get through this crisis. Uh, and it ended up because he helped us bring in his brother as an investor and we rounded up some other money, uh, including from the SBA, that we didn't need to take the pay cut, right? So uh, for me, every crisis is an opportunity to learn something about yourself and to learn something about um, how you can do a lot better. I mean, you see the amount of gymnastics people are doing in business right now to innovate, to catch up, to digitize their business. I see it every day because I help people put their business online. People never would have done this kind of work, sat down, had, had the time, made the time, focused. I, you know, I've been more productive in the last four to six weeks in my business than I think I was in the last year or two because I've been forced through crisis to focus. And I choose to to because of my training in the army and being in some tough situations, but I think we've all been there and we can train ourselves to do this, especially with coaching, which you talk about is, is use a crisis to create an opportunity. And the people who have the mindset that every crisis is an opportunity uh, will get through this. And the people that have the mindset that every crisis is the fault of someone else powers that they cannot control. Uh, and, and that's true. We cannot control the fact that the coronavirus happened, but we can control our reaction to it. We can control the story that we tell ourselves about it. And, and that's really where, you know, the, the storytelling stuff that I teach, I say it's a marketing tool, but it's really a life tool. And life is about history is made by people who tell better stories and, and believe those stories and empowering stories that inspire themselves and their families and communities and even nations to do things that people thought were impossible. Good stuff. So, so on your application here, I think this is a great place to put this in is, 
you said there are three principles you need to abide by to keep your team with you. And you already discussed how you were able to keep your team together. Candor, real transparency, competence. People believe you have a plan that will work. And then I love this last one, caring. People know you care about them. Yeah, about look, I, I've, I've got I've to give credit where credit is due. I hope you put this in the show notes. Joel Trammell, who runs the American CEO and the Texas CEO magazine, he sold two startups, one for $100 million, one for $200 million. He has a CEO leadership course that I attended, and it was really fantastic because being the CEO of a company is way different. Even if it's a 20-person startup, it's actually way harder and way different than if you're managing 1,000, 2,000 people in a large company. Because in the army, I always had a boss. I, I was in charge of 140 soldiers in Iraq, but I had a boss and I had structure around me and I had guidance and I had boundaries, right? As a CEO, you have no boss. And you are literally out there without a parachute, without any guardrails, and you're out there just kind of floating. And even if you're you know, a solopreneur, uh, that is pretty, pretty hard. And a lot of people don't have enough respect for someone who just runs their own business, even if they're the only person working for it. But especially when you have team members, you're raising money, you have customers, you have partners, and, and you have all these different stakeholders. And you've got to balance the interests of, of all these different stakeholders. I have investors, I have board of directors, I have partner agencies that resell our software, I have team members, I have clients, I have a business partner who's a co-founder, and all of them deserve a, um, you know, a, a fair shake as a leader. And Joel taught me these principles. And I, at the time I was going through the funding crisis of the business, we were, we were uh, not raising the money we needed to from a capital group that was working with us. We had to determine that we were going to cut ties with that group. Uh, it was a very, very tough period of time. There was a lot of uh, uh, rancor inside of my team and my founding team at the time about whether or not we should go forward with this capital group or find another one. I was at Joel's workshop and Joel was talking about the three things you needed to do to lead through a crisis. And when I went out of business four and a half years ago uh, with, with the forerunner to what became James Cook Media and, and now Sanity Desk, because that's when we started the software project, I remember going through understanding in my heart that I didn't have enough money to keep going, but constantly kicking the can down the road and whistling to the graveyard and acting like to my team that everything was going to be okay. And, and really no one knew it was coming. And then one day I walked into the office and I basically said, Hey guys, we're out of money. Uh, I'm going to go to America to try and find some in about three weeks. I'll let you know if I have any money to pay all of you guys. And, you know, trying to inspire them through that period. It was, it was a disaster because I hadn't been honest with them. Candor. I had not told them the truth about the financial struggles until it was too late. None of them had any warning that it was coming and it was, it was just a disaster, right? So this time, fast forward four and a half years, I start running out of money about a year ago. I pulled all of my team into the office. I said, Hey guys, it's not critical yet, but we are not making it. I need to go raise money. This time I had a technology uh, that we could use to raise money. It was a lot better prospects. But I said, hey, here are the odds, okay? This is the honest situation. Um, so that was the candor compared to the first time where I didn't do it at all. Um, and then the second thing was, 
I would say, here's the plan. Here's all the different investors I'm talking to. Here's all the different ways we can get money. Here's how we can make sales to get money. Here's all the different investors. Here's the different um, odds that I think of us making it. And that created the competence where people said, well, we've seen you make sales before. You're very good at sales. Investment's different. We understand that. But it is a sales, it's the ultimate sales endeavor to get someone to give you their money because they'll probably never see it again in investing. At least in sales, they're going to get a product in return. And uh, getting them to understand that I believed we had a competent plan and I was, you know, competent enough to carry it out based on the skills they'd seen me uh, display as a CEO, that allowed them to stick with me, right? And I would I would, you know, I flew to the United States and every day I'd write these long updates in this Facebook group about what exactly I'd done that day. I did this meeting and this is how it's going and here's the chances. So I was constantly updating them every day uh, with what was going on. And then finally, caring, right? So if you're warning people that you may not be able to pay them and they're going to keep working, they need to understand that you can care. And how can you demonstrate that you care? In the army, I would do this when we went out on a raid. I would go out at night with the soldiers who are going and putting themselves in danger and I'd go into the buildings with them, right? Uh, I would put myself in harm's way to lead by example. Uh, in, 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 in business, they would get emails and texts from me updating them at all day, all hours of the night and they would see just the summary of how hard I was working. No one in the company was working harder than me at that point to make sure that I found the money to pay the team. Um, and then finally, just, uh, and, and, and this is critical, and it, it goes back to candor is, I wasn't running the finances of my company, my operations manager was, and everyone saw that I was sleeping on couches, uh, trying to save as much money as possible and putting my own uh, interests last uh, in relationship to, um, you know, getting this done. Now, in my first time where I went out of business, tried to raise money and didn't, the candor is what really killed me. I was, I was competent. People believed that I was good at selling. I could have gone and raised money. Uh, I, I was caring, you know, I was going out and I was, I was doing, you know, I was working hard. The, the equation was very similar. The one thing that I didn't have was, was the candor, but you know, let's say um, we're, we're running out of money and I'm still paying myself, you know, $10,000 a month which I, I never was, but let's say I, I was paying myself that amount and, and, and you know, my team's over uh, in, in Eastern Europe where salaries are a lot lower. People see that, hey, the boss is getting his salary, but we may not get ours. That shows lack of caring. And competence is, hey, I've got no investment leads, but I'm going to go to America and I'll probably come up with money, probably know what it would have stayed, but because they knew I had a plan, I, they knew I was talking to people and, and members of my team knew that I was talking to people. It wasn't just me saying so. And they trusted me because I was being honest. Uh, then, then that was the way to kind of get through uh, get through the period. And we had a period of nine months where you know it was it was a nightmare. Pay was late every month. Uh, we would get get round to it. We'd have a pot of money and we'd say to people, "Hey, tell me what you need. It's payday. Uh, well, I got to pay rent, so I need X amount." Or um, you know, my, my daughter has a whatever, you know, has a medical appointment, so I need this amount. And people literally just take what they needed because I was updating them every day about all the things I was doing to get money. And they knew that money was probably going to come in, just not on time. But we would, we would kind of stay two to three weeks behind. 
and it was enough to kind of get everyone through the period. Other, you know, I, my manager was loaning money to people out of his own pocket from his savings. Uh, and, and by the way, this was a Ukrainian team, so it's a little bit more hardcore in terms of I, I'm not sure Americans would have done this as, as much, but if with good leadership, they certainly would have, I think, um, you know, followed. But, you know, this is not uncommon in startup territory in the United States and Silicon Valley. It's not like this has never been done before, uh, but I would imagine that anyone who's gotten through a similar situation or worse three things for me to remember in a crisis is, okay, am I being honest? Am I being competent? Have I mastered the details? Do people believe that my plan is going to work? And, and then finally, do I care? Am I putting myself last? And, and are people uh, seeing that, you know, because they need, they need to see that you care. And, and, you know, those three, it's like three legs of a stool. If one of them's not there, the other two don't matter. Well, thanks to Joel Trammell for, for this lesson and for you for introducing me and my audience to it. You know, listeners, I hope you've written down these three things. We're, we're talking about the candor, which is radical transparency, the competence, people believe you and know that you can do it and have a plan that will work. And then the caring people know that you care about them. And we've heard it a lot. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care is what my, my mentor, John Maxwell, likes to say. So we appreciate you listening to the podcast today. I want to ask you to do me a favor. If you will, go over wherever you're listening to this podcast at and leave us an honest review and rating. Share this podcast with others. I think they'll gain some knowledge from Samuel and what we've discussed today, this leading through crisis and his experiences, both in the military and in businesses, some, some real true crises that he's had to navigate through and his experiences with that. Thanks for listening today. Remember to build yourself and then build others. Want to learn how to build yourself and build your team? Visit www.buildcs.net and learn about Brian's programs, special offers, and more. Build yourself and then build others.